to the Big Ed Idea Podcast, a podcast for those looking to change the world through education. Each week we bring you a new idea, however big and bold it is, that has the potential to disrupt, upheave, or remix education. Now here's your host and my dad, Ryan Scott. This is the Big Ed Idea Podcast. I am Ryan Scott. For those of you that are returning for episode three, uh, I just want to tell you thank you so much for uh, devoting your time and spending your time with me today. Um, I humbly, humbly appreciate that. Um, For those of you that have tuned in for the very first time, welcome, welcome, welcome. And uh, real quick, we, um, we here on the Big Ed Idea Podcast are doing our very, very best to connect one person's vision to another person's passions, because we truly know that it takes a group of people and it takes a connection to change the world. So once again, thank you for being here today. Um, This is episode three. I have the absolute pleasure of having my friend um, who I have known, and I got the um, pleasure of knowing several years ago. Um, Actually saw him at a conference, a KASA conference, several years ago, um, heard him talk about children in poverty, and um, I was so moved by that one session that I went at, went back for the second session. Um, and then um, a little further down the year, I uh, reached out to him for something, and we had the opportunity to work together to literally change the world. Um, so Mr. Bob, um, Bob Barr is his name, and he is an amazing gentleman. Um, if you have ever heard him uh, speak in person, he's a wonderful speaker, but he's also a huge author. Um, so real quick, I'm going to read his bio um, that he gave to me, and I'm going to tell you what, this dude has got it going on, so let me read it to you. It says, Bob Barr is nationally and internationally recognized for his research on poverty and education. He has worked with schools, universities, professional organizations, and communities in 47 states and in a number of other countries. He has served as associate dean or dean at Indiana University, Oregon State University, and Boise State University. He is the author or co-author of 16 books, three national recognized, Saving Our Students, Saving Our Schools, was recognized with honorable mention for the Education Book of the Year in 2009. Building a Culture of Hope was selected as Learning Magazine's Teacher Choice for Professional Development in 2015. And that's the book, I might say, that got me hooked on Bob Barr. One of his first books, Defining the Social Studies with Barth and Shermis, was identified as the single most cited book in the field of social education. Barr taught history at R.L. Pasquale High School in Fort Worth, Texas, was selected as one of 20 Ford Foundation's Washington interns in education in 1970, and was recognized for distinguished achievement by three national awards. He completed his PhD at Purdue University in 1969. And what I think really speaks to Barr, I didn't even know, Barr, uh, Bob, that you had um, a doctorate. So that is really awesome, um, you know, that I didn't know that. Um, Barr's most recent book with Emily Gibson is Building the Resilient School, 
and I think I've read that three times now. He is retired, dividing his time between homes in Boise, Idaho, and Newport, Oregon, and continues to work with schools. So Bob, thank you so much for joining us. It's a delight to be here. It's good to be with Big Ed. <laughs> I appreciate that, Bob. So um, I alluded a little bit, you know, we've had a pro professional relationship um, for a number of years, but I just want you, if you don't mind, uh, walk our listeners down memory lane, uh, maybe of, of how we first met and kind of, you know, what endeavor led us, um, I guess, down the world, down the road of world uh, changing, changing the world. Uh, you invited me to come to a symposium in Morganfield, Kentucky. I'd never been to Morganfield, never even really been to uh, Western Kentucky. I've done some work in Evansville, so it was a new experience for me. Uh, it was, uh, it was uh, an unusual opportunity where an entire community had come together to focus on poverty. And uh, if I remember correctly, Morganfield at one time was a booming economy with five coal mines. And then up in Evansville, uh, there was the Whirlpool uh, washer uh, factory. And there were good jobs with good salaries. And people moved to the area and en enjoyed the good, good life. And over time, as the world changed, uh, the five coal mines uh, drifted down to two. Uh, much of the two were still uh, operated with autom automated uh, machinery. And so the community had a huge uh, population of, of people who had slipped down into poverty. You even uh, drove me through some of the areas that were, I found really startling. Uh, and you also introduced me to the sheriff who was about six foot eight or nine, a giant guy. I still have that picture of me standing beside the sheriff. And I look like a little dwarf. I could sit on his lap. He says, and, and what a guy of great commitment and emotion. And uh, we had a day together uh, trying to talk with, we had city councilmen, we had live people from the library, from the, the hospital, from the schools, from the business community. And for a short while, all of that group came together to focus on poverty. And it proved to me to be a truly outstanding experience. Absolutely. Um, if I remember correctly, uh, we had done that on the Area Job Corps Center. Um, and yes, you are exactly right. That was a it was a remarkable day to be able to get a group of people in the same room talking about the same thing who really had the same vision of what we were gonna do as a community, first and foremost to help our students, but then would ultimately um, help our community as well. And yes. um, before we move on, I've gotta let you know, um, I reached out to Jeff, big Jeff, Jeff Dibler. <laughs> Um, He is still, we talk, we talk weekly still. Um, and I let him know that I was going to be talking to you tonight. And he wanted me to make sure that you knew that he was still thinking about you. Um, I'm gonna tell you what, that, that community, and I don't say this lightly, that community has a gold mine in their police chief because um, that guy regularly, yes, you're right, he's seven foot tall, 300 and something pounds, would regularly come in and read kindergarten, to, the, to my kindergartners 
just just a wonderful guy. My 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 nine year old still talks about him to this day. So I just wanted you to know. He yeah, said, "Thank you." He, he and I, he and I are Facebookers. Oh so yeah, we, we we track one another a bit. I still remember his story about he is the number one door kicker in the community when they have to go into a family for whatever reason. He's the one that kicks the door in, and he said the reason he did. He wants to go in and, and be with the children in that house and make sure they're safe and protected. It was it was an incredibly touching moment to yeah. hear a law enforcement officer. The size this guy is, his goal is to get in the door and find the children. Yeah. Well, and, and to my listeners, um, Jeff is going to be a guest down the road because um, he has plenty of ideas to bring to our table. And we've already talked about that. Um, I'll tell you, still to this day, we end every conversation with I love you. Um, he's just a just a wonderful man. And, and so I wanted to, before we went on, I wanted you to know that he was still thinking about you. Good. Thank you very much. Very welcome. Um, so, you know, part of this show, before we really dig into our content, um, I really try to model this idea of connections before content. Um, so what I want to do is it's something called the two for two. And so I will ask you two questions, which have nothing to do with the world of education. Um, and then you will turn around and ask me too, um, mainly just so we know a little bit more about each other. And then we will dive into that content. Um, it's mainly, mainly meant to show the educators out there that truly, if you want to connect with kids and you want to teach them, you got to know them first. So my first question for you. Um, I am a music buff and music tells me a lot about somebody. So I wanted to ask you, when you were 16 years old, what would you be listening to on your record player? <laughs> Good country music. All right. Uh, I grew up in Texas and uh, I, play a, I play a back porch guitar and our, our whole family uh, lived... Uh, lived with country music, it's a part of our life. And the music is a, a part of my memories as my childhood. And I can still uh, remember vividly, before television, we had a radio, but uh, 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 friends would come to visit and my mother would say, Robert, go get your guitar, won't you play a song for us? And we'd go out in the backyard, she'd put what she called a pallet down uh, in the hot desert uh, summers of Texas. She'd make ice water. We'd sit around and and play songs and sing as a family, and then uh, lie down on her back and watch the night sky come up. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> some of my best family memories. That's great. Um, not to take us off tangent, but my dad grew up in San Antonio, Texas, and he talks about when he was a kid, they had a family band. Um, my papa played the banjo. My dad played the. Oh, yeah, my dad played the trombone. There was a guitar, and they just sat around on the front porch and picked and just music. Yeah, just music. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so my my second question's a little bit a little bit different. Um, I wonder if you had a time period that you could travel to, any time period in the history of the world and you could live there for, let's say 30 days, where would you go? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Uh, I guess I'd go to Europe uh, uh, because I, as an old history teacher, I was always fascinated by European history and I, I had the good pleasure of 1978 uh, going to the University of Innsbruck in Austria as a visiting professor one summer. I, I, I never dreamed I'd get to go back. And so while we were there, we got a URL pass and, and we traveled all, <laughs> we traveled everywhere because we were afraid we'd never get to go back. We'd say, get on the train, we'll ride it all night to Paris. We'll ride it all night to Venice. We'll, and uh, I guess I would choose a, a particular period in, uh, in European history uh, to live some of the, the remarkable times that they had. Absolutely, that's a good one. All right, Bob, you got two for me? Okay, I've got one. What are your dreams for your children? Oh, Lord. Okay, so I'm going to be, so part of this podcast is I try to be as vulnerable as possible. Um, there's a guy, his name's Joe Beckman. Um, he's a motivational speaker, and he talks about how we are so busy sometimes chasing the extraordinary that we forget to be ordinary. And he talks about how in the classroom, we need to be vulnerable with our kids. And I really take that to heart, because if you know me, you'll know my intentions. So you know, I'll be, I'll be vulnerable up until probably last year. I did not want my kids to go into education. Um, and I was adamant about that with my oldest. Um, I just did not like the, I, I felt, you know, teachers should be on a pedestal and I didn't think they were getting that. Um, you know, the salary is absolutely atrocious for what they do. Um, but this last year has kind of changed that because to me, educators are the ones in my, in my opinion that have the biggest impact on kids' lives. And literally we are raising the next generation. Um, if you talk about, if you look at um, the amount of time that parents spend out of the home working um, and the amount of time that they actually spend with their own kids, um, teachers are the ones that are raising these kids. And so you have the ability to literally rewrite the future um, just by the things and the way and the, the, you know, what you, I guess, and it's, and it's more than the content, you know, it's how to be a good person. And the teachers are, are getting to do that. So does that make sense? It sure does. Uh, you know, uh, how many times have you been in a situation where people say, can you name four, the four or five people who most influence your life? And inevitably, it's uh, two or three teachers there that literally touched you. And uh, I'm, I'm in the golden years right now. And uh, I taught in Texas in the early 1960s. So it's like, I don't know, what is it, 40, 50 years ago, something like that. And and then I moved on and I haven't, I've never lived in Texas again. So I never had the occasion to bump into my students. I just never did. But now with technology over the last 10 or 15 years, my students have tracked me down. Right. And now we, we're on Facebook together. We chit chat. We, we, uh, we're even working on a manuscript together. That's so great. Uh, and, and we spend a lot of time reminiscing and while my students think that I touched their lives. My students touched me in a way that changed me forever and ever. 
So I, I, I really like. I have a second question for All you. Right. Behind, behind you is a poster of the Beatles. That's right. And you mentioned uh, yesterday when we talked on the phone a Beatle. Uh, you must be a Beatle aficionado. Oh, I am. Um, I got into the Beatles when I was 14. I was playing on a travel soccer team. And um, I had never heard of them. I don't know why, but uh, one of these kids that I was playing with brought um, the Beatles White Album. And I remember listening to it over and over and over and over and over and over. And uh, as I got, yeah, as I got older, I um, got all of the Beatles songs for the piano. Um, I have read multiple biographies. Um, John Lennon is my absolute favorite. Um, my wife and I actually, when we met, we kind of jokingly said, you know, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Someday I hope you'll join us and the world will live as one. Um, she's a social worker. I'm a teacher. We kind of live by that quote. Yeah. Um, so yeah, the Beatles, I'm a big Beatles guy. Good for you. Yeah. So thank okay. you. Now, now I know a little bit. Enough, enough chit chat. Let's go to work. All right, let's go to work. So uh, Bob, I know, you know, from having read your two books, um, which by the way, I still, you know, I look at them weekly. Um, my dream is to use per particularly culture of hope kind of as the framework of, of what is, of how a school should be run. So in the future, um, I might be picking your brain about how I can really implement those things into the culture of my school, but um, talk to us about what is the big problem that your big idea hopes to solve. Uh, and and this, this comes from my heart and it comes from uh, 40, 50 years of work in the field of education. And that is how to keep alive the American dream, the American dream uh, that, that sets us apart from the rest of the world, I think a dream that anyone, anywhere could come here and with hard work and sa sacrifice could build a good life for themselves. It was the idea that any, anybody without, without ed education, without, without any background, without any bio, just people who were willing to work hard and sacrifice, it, it, it didn't promise that they would get rich, but it promised the opportunity to live a better life, to, to climb up that social mo mobility and, and they and their family find a better life. My, 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 my family was that way. Uh, uh, we've tra tra traced it back to the East Coast and somewhere back along the line, the family uh, moved, uh, packed up and moved to Tennessee looking for land. Later, they packed up and moved to Texas looking for land. Uh, until my father came along, no one in my family uh, had ever owned land. They were sharecroppers. They, they worked, they worked and on someone else's land and then split their crop. Uh, none of my family ever held a job. They never worked, <laughs> they never worked for a wage. They were farmers. They were sharecrop farmers. Then my father came along and he left the farm, uh, went to the city, uh, got a job, uh, first uh, a good, a good paying job at Swift and Companies, a meat packing firm. Later, he got a job as a custodian. Later, 
during the World War II, he, he got a job in a defense factory that changed his life and income and everything. He bought an acre of land, the first person in all of our history, he bought an acre of land. He later divided that acre, sold it, bought eight acres, later sold the eight acres and bought a ranch in Texas, uh, the, the famous B Bar B Texas <laughs> Ranch with white face Herefords. And this, he lived the American dream. And, he, and none, of, none of my family had ever had ed education. None of them had ever graduated from elementary school. Uh, you just didn't need an education. You went to work. And one day, uh, my parents' son would go off to college. And uh, even though he, did, my, my mother and my father didn't understand it, uh, I left uh, my home and left my family and uh, took a fellowship at Purdue University to earn a doctorate. And, and now, uh, looking back, uh, my, my wife has a graduate degree and both of my kids have doctorates. And we literally stepped into a different and dramatically new world that my parents didn't understand. But what, I, what my concern is, is that the growing number of people who live in poverty in the United States, who live a, world, a life of hopelessness, it's been documented, it's been researched, so that so many Americans today don't think about the opportunities and the hope of living the American dream. They have learned a sense of helplessness and hopelessness. And in my interviews in communities all across America, I hear it again and again and again and again. No matter how hard I work, no matter what I do, no matter what I sacrifice, my life does not get better. I, I am influenced and controlled by factors outside of my own life. So my, my issue, and it's been all the way through my career, is what can I do as an educator to open a door of opportunity for the children of poverty so that they might have a vision of hope in their life. And here's, here's the conclusion of some of the best researchers in the field of neuroeducation and brain research is hope is more important than talent in terms of achievement and success in school and life. Hope. Hope is more important than talent. And it reminds me, I'll give you one more quick little story. When I was a kid, uh, I was having trouble in the elementary school. And my parents went down and uh, the principal said, uh, uh, you know, Robert's lacking in, a, in, a, in ability. And my mother didn't understand what she was talking about. In our world, we never even talk about him. You got up and worked all day. Yeah. You went to the field. Right. You, you didn't. You didn't worry about who's right. got the best ability. We just rolled up our sleeves and went to work. And so, uh, once again, uh, my concern is providing hope for the generation of kids today who are living in the United States. And of course, the pandemic has overwhelmed everything else that has occurred to these people and now plunge more and more uh, people into that into that that deep canyon of hopelessness and helplessness. Oh, I can. So I would 
if, if there was a number more, like if I could agree with you more than a hundred percent, I absolutely would. Um, I think emphatically that there is another pandemic that we don't talk about and that's learned helplessness and what huge difference, like you're saying, it would be if we could infuse our schools and our classroom with the hope for these students to overcome what you're saying. Um, and a lot, and in my opinion, a large, a large part of that has to do with poverty. Um, I just looked yesterday at statistics. 20% of all kids in the United States live in poverty. You look at Finland, only 5% of all kids live in poverty. Now, we know that correlation is not causation, but which, which country also has the best education system in the world? Well, Finland does. And I'm not saying it's because, you know, it's only solely because of that poverty issue, but I think there are definite side effects to growing up in poverty as you are saying, and as we know, uh, just talking about ACEs and, and talking about the, the psychology behind it. But so what is your idea of how we can make this a reality? Uh, I'll try to keep it short. Uh, <laughs> that's and, okay. and it's, not, it's not my idea. That's, that's the beauty of it. It is not my idea. It's the idea of local school districts across the United States that have become what my wonderful co-author Emily Gibson said is that schools are becoming the first responders to poverty. Absolutely. I love that. The school is becoming first responders. And here's how it happened. We spent, we spent all of my life as educators looking <laughs> at the school and the classroom and at the teacher and focused on academic learning, first of all. We wanted to make certain that the children learned and learned well. We use achievement tests. Then later someone said, you know, a researcher saying, I think we're missing something. We're teaching the kids, we're teaching pretty good, but we're not having the effect we want. And so then we began to supplement academic learning with social emotional learning. And, and I spent a, a good deal of my work trying to understand how can we meet the social emotional needs of kids. And then as we traveled around the country, as I communicated with people, as people talked to me, people said, we've done everything that research suggests. We've got a strong academic uh, curriculum. We've got strong teachers. We're addressing social emotional needs. And you know what? We've got kids that miss 60 days of school each year. We've got huge numbers, percentages that miss 30 days of school each year. We've got kids that move in and move out. At the end of the month, they can't pay their rent and they move on down the, ro the road. And it's like that old horror movie that they'll be back right. because they move here, they move here, and then they're back with us. We now know that when a child moves at least three times, they give up because they don't even bother to try to make friends because they don't. Man, dude, I've been here. I'm not going to be here long. We'll be on down the line. So schools around the country simultaneously begin to say, wait a minute. A kid, how can we teach a kid who's hungry? How can we teach a kid who is traumatized? 
How can we teach a kid who's scared? How do we teach a kid who's sick? And so the school, the local, the local school, the neighborhood school begin to look around and say, how could we as a school address the human basic needs of families living in poverty? And then the most remarkable thing happened. I'm not sure exactly where it happened first or how it happened, but slowly I describe it as a, as a grassroots movement. It's like a wildfire spread across the country. And most of the places that it's spreading, they don't know about, they have not in the past known about each other. Now they're flying teams across the country to visit these schools. They call them all different things. Uh, many of them are called community schools. Absolutely. Some yes. of them are called family assistance centers. Uh, the state of Kentucky's got them all over the state. Yep. And the idea is the school doesn't try to address the needs of the family, but the school uh, acts as a liaison. They, they, they go to the food bank and say, let us be a distribution center for your food. And so the, the food bank comes in every week and stocks a pantry. And in my little neighborhood school here, Garfield Elementary School in Idaho, uh, they, have, they have two rules. Come as often as you need, parents. Come as often as you need. Take whatever you need. And it's, there's food. So nobody in that community is going to go hungry. They also have clothes, got shoes. They, they did, they, they, uh, people came to them, uh, Nike came and said, hey, you know, we got last year's models. Nobody's going to buy them. We'll give them to you. Uh, I've seen them bring in high school kids and say, welcome to our school. Would you like some new Nike shoes? You know, I, I go down to my little neighborhood school uh, and see their family resource center. There's their food, there's winter coats, there's, they got, got showers, they got washers and dryers. And over here, I said, what, what are these people doing over here? Uh, are there a group of African refugees living in Idaho? In Idaho, are you kidding me? A group of African refugees, they were mothers. And I said, what are they doing over there? They're learning English. And said, after the English class, we're teaching a second class that they've asked us to help them with. I said, what's that? It's how to do your income tax. And as I kept coming back and back, uh, I discovered uh, at the, in late February and early March, they began to get back their refunds from their income tax. And these African refugees that they and their family are, have jobs in Boise, Idaho, working, they're learning English, they're learning skills, and they filled out their income tax. And some of them got three or $4,000 back. And it was like, they, they couldn't imagine. So that's, uh, that's my answer. And, and that's what I call a resilient school, a school that's teaching academics. We can't forget that. We got to make every kid a stimmer, science, technology, engineering, math. We got to ground them in the skills of the new age. We got to meet their social emotional needs. We got to surround them with optimism and high expectations. And we've got to help work on their self-concept and help them find purpose in their life. And we address the needs of the community, whatever that is. 
and and so we go we rather than families try to get on a bus or ride downtown and change bus drive some ride somewhere else or in the country try to borrow a ride or hitchhike That's to right. take their children yeah. to get their eyes checked or a dentist checked they're now saying don't do that don't spend a day no we'll we'll bring dentists to the school they'll volunteer their time we'll bring ophthalmologist to the school, they'll volunteer their time. And so the, the, the school of tomorrow that I see addressing the needs of poverty and the challenge of hopelessness and helplessness is that local neighborhood school that is emerging as the first responders to poverty to keep kids anchored in their community, going to their school and succeeding and finding a pathway to a better life for themselves and their family. I think what you are saying is um, exactly what our, what our communities need. Um, I like to say our schools should be triage centers. Um, yeah. You know, they are the, like you say, they are the first responders. Um, a guy by the name of Brian Perlman, he wrote the book uh, Maslow's Before Bloom, and um, he's got a Facebook page, and, and I definitely prescribe to that, you know, Maslow's hierarchy, that there is no way that we can ask these kids to do academics if we don't first try to work on their basic needs, and the, the, the sad thing and the thing that really keeps me up at night is those 20% of our kids now that are living in poverty and so if like you're right if our schools aren't addressing those needs we're never going to going to close those academic gaps those achievement gaps that we have literally wasted trillions of dollars over the last what 30 40 years throwing these things at when in my opinion and i think what you're saying is that money would better be invested in trying to lower the poverty so that hopefully the side effect of learned helplessness would be de decreased. In, in the last few weeks, uh, there's been a wave across the country raising the minimum wage, and that may be a, a positive development of the pandemic. Uh, but the uh, 20 states now have recently raised minimum wage uh, to 12 to 15 dollars uh, an hour and uh, you know how can how can you ever learn hope for a better life when if you've got a job and you're working a full-time job and a part-time job and you can't you you you, you still can't pay your rent yeah. uh, you, you you're still living in poverty and so no matter how hard you work no matter how hard you try the, the, the income ceiling is so low. I, I never suggest we ought to give away a lot of money to poor people. What I do suggest is they ought to have opportunities for real jobs. And we ought, we ought to focus on, on, on education, vocational training, skill training, technology training that leads to a job. I collect jobs that you can get in a year uh, uh, because I, I I think, isn't that incredible that, so that I can talk to parents and say, would you invest a year of your life or your son or daughter's life 
if it led to a high paying job? Would you invest two years of your life? I don't talk about going to college. College is, that, that's, that's a different world. But I talk about going to a community college, to a vocational training center and learning skills Absolutely. that in a year you could be a, you could have a job in a hospital. You could have a job in a hospital drawing blood. Uh, uh, you, you, could have, you could be a, a commercial truck driver. Uh, you could be a beautician. <laughs> there are jobs out there. And the sad, sad part of all of this in the richest, greatest nation on earth, certainly the richest nation on earth, that, that people are unable to access an opportunity to build a life for themselves and their family. Yeah, you're exactly right. My, uh, I don't know how many of our listeners ascribe to the one word, because uh, I stopped doing New Year's, re- New Year's resolutions a long time ago, because I realized the um, small percentage of people that actually do them. So I started several years ago doing a one word, and my one word for this year is serve, um, because I really honestly believe that in education, we are servants first and teachers second. And if we would really put that, really, if we believe in it, and then let's really do it. And I think what you've said tonight, so I think you have said eloquently what I believe in, and I know many of our listeners, because I talk to them about this, many of our people out there believe that we are servants first, teachers second. And for my, for my, listeners out there, I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to look up Bob Barr in his books, um, Building a Culture of Hope. Nope, that's right. And Mm -hmm. the Building the Resilient School. Is that right? Did I get those right? That's right. About the only thing we did in the Resilient School, we added a section, once again, my wonderful co-author, Emily Gibson, uh, stumbled on a research about the effects of poverty on teachers. And we begin to looking at secondhand stress yep, yep, and yep. and post traumatic stress with, with secondhand post traumatic stress on teachers who work with kids who arrive each day hungry, sick, and traumatized often. So uh, those two books are the culmination of all my work, all our all my ideas for what they're worth: building a culture of hope and building the resilient school. Hopefully they fit together. Uh, They're part one and part two of our best idea of looking at schools all across America and saying, what are they these most effective schools doing to touch the lives of kids and their families and open the door of opportunity to a better life? Amazing, man. Um, I've said this I don't know if I said it on the podcast before, but when I was in the classroom, I always told my kids that when I was really, really happy, um, I had goosebumps. And so um, I just want you to know, I've got goosebumps right now because, (laughs) yeah, literally, because what you're saying, um, man, I love it. Like that's, that's exactly what I was hoping we would talk about tonight. Um, Is there any way, are you a Twitter guy? Um, I know you're a Facebook guy, but are you a Twitter guy? Do you have a Twitter handle? I'm not a Twitter guy. I'm okay. Not. Okay. Okay. So if anybody would want to get a hold of you, should they just maybe uh, reach out to you on Facebook? 
Yeah, they could do that. Or my, uh, if you can give them my email address. Absolutely. It's, it's Ardale Barr, one word. My first initial, middle name, and last name. R-D-A-L-E-B-A-R-R. Ardale Barr at AOL.com. I love it. And I welcome, I, 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 wel I welcome opportunities to chat. I love it. I love it. And I welcome, I welcome your friendship and your big, your big police chief sheriff. Uh, give him my love as well. I absolutely will. So, Bob, I think I'm going to wrap us up for the night. Um, it has been an absolute um, pleasure. Um, I wish I knew a better word, but I just want you to know um, I highly respect you. Um, I really look up to you, um, and I pray that. Um, later in life, I have accomplished as much as you have. Um, and, and I know you have touched the lives of thousands of people with your book and your ideas. So I just want you to know from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate you. Well, let me say this. It's, it warms my heart to know there are guys like you. And there are thousands of guys like you who are deeply committed to touch the lives of kids. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you. And to my listeners... Thank you so very much for sticking around uh, tonight. I do want to let you know if the sound on this episode is not up to par, um, my lovely daughters, I guess, broke my microphone over the day. Um, so yes, this, listen, this is reality. I am a dad of four daughters. Um, anybody out there that has ever had kid knows that life happens. Um, what is it? John says life is... Life is what happy, happens when you're busy making other plans. So on that, I will talk to you all yeah. later. And as always, I'll see you in the funny paper. Thank you for hanging out with me here on the Big Ed Idea Podcast. My hope is that this would be a conversation, a meeting of the minds and a space for one person's vision to inspire the passions of another. However, none of this can happen without you. So let's be change agents together and build a better future. Please subscribe or reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Come to the conversation with your passion, and together, let's build something awesome. Until next time, I'll see you in the funny paper. <laughs>